Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we love Hedda Barbera! Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara, a celebration of Bill Hannah, Joe Barbara, and the thousands of people past and present who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Thank you, Chris Anthony. Welcome to the show. Our guest today is Mr. Lee Gambin, who is a author a film critic, a film historian. He has been heard on many, many commentaries, including Jetson's The Movie. And that's what our main subject's going to be. But as you know, on our show, we go off into other galaxies with our discussions. But first, I just want to welcome Lee Gambin to the show. Welcome. Hi, Greg. Thanks for having me on. It's an honor. This is the miracle of Zoom. We're speaking, actually bending time and space because it's a completely different day in Australia. That's where right. Much, <laughs> much like the Jetsons, our friends, the Jetsons are from the future. So. That's right. Poor Gloria. She lost her face. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So let's talk a little bit about you, what you've done, what you're about to do. Yeah, so I mean, I've been doing film critical work for a long time now, a while now. I started like really DIY and indie in the sort of Melbourne punk scene, I guess, doing um, zines, monster movie zines, horror movie zines, and selling them at pubs to buy beer. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had this mainstream kind of job that was boring me, and I was like, you know, take time off and just read Fangoria magazine. And then one day I was like, I'm going to just try and see if I can write for Fangoria. I'd love to. And they said yes straight away. They liked my pieces I sent. And that's how it sort of all sort of started. And then I worked on a book um, on eco-horror films, so animal-centric horror films. Everything sort of started to broaden, and it was really lovely just to get hired from home media companies to do commentaries. And in the midterm, would do books. I did a book on 70s film musicals. I did a two-volume book on um, very special episodes of TV sitcoms, monographs on The Howling, Cujo, Christine, and now recently Carrie, an oral history of Carrie, Brian De Palma's film. So all this stuff. And I've always written and I've always loved every kind of genre and every era. And animation, cartoons, have always been an absolute love of mine. I had to sort of champion that when I was doing the commentary track for Jetsons the movie. At one moment, I sort of talk about the comfort of cartoons and how they're kind of like a warm blanket. And everything that I consume is pretty much a comfort thing, whether it's 
classic television, whether it's musicals, westerns, horror films, film noir, pre-code, classic movies, you know, everything seems to be like a comfort thing. I always said if you could fall asleep to something, that means it's an absolute comfort. <laughs> because it's not on edge. It's like a blanket, it's like a fuzzy blanket. And, you know, you could let Man Park Kettle or Francis the Talking Mule or whatever rock you to sleep. And so I think that's a really important thing. And what also, which I really love about your work, Greg, is that you love to champion things that are unsung. And what I also love to do as well, and it's such a beautiful honour to do it when I get hired to do these works for these Blu-ray companies, is be able to champion works that seem to be poo-pooed, what I call this cultural classism, Mm -hmm. where basically there's this idea that these things are really okay and these things make sense to be lauded, but this really? Nah. And I think a lot of cartoons, especially like the Saturday morning cartoon realm, gets sucked up into that. It's sort of poo-pooed and looked down upon. I think that's really a disservice to not only the work, but the people who worked on them and the whole fabric of that culture, that this really important cartoon culture that most of us grew up with. So I think it's really detrimental to sort of uh, dismiss you know, whether it's a particular era, whether it's a particular studio or a creative, because I think it's sort of uh, kind of an easy thing to do. It's an easy option. And there's people, and you know this, Greg, as someone who's worked in this field forever, there are people who don't even know what they're talking about when they're in discussions of these things. They just have this cutoff point. Oh, no, I don't dig, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't care about this period of Hanna-Barbera, or I don't care about filmation that looks cheap, and all that stuff. And it's really kind of these knee-jerk, absolute comments that sort of irk me. It's the same as like when people would say flatly, oh, I don't like musicals. And like, really? Like, musicals have been around for a long time, and they're not the same. No, no. Each one is very different. Like, do you think Fiddler on the Roof is like hair? And do you think Rocky Horror is like Sound of Music? When you have this absolute statement, I don't like, dot, dot, dot. So I think that's something that I really want to bring to the fore when I do these commentaries is just to sort of give these movies, I guess, a new life, just a new perspective. And and I'm honoured to do it and I'm humbled by it because this is a lot of stuff I grew up with. So it's bizarre when you're like working on something where I get to use all this quote-unquote misspent youth, which is actually properly spent, um, (laughs) watching all this beautiful stuff and then bringing it to this work. And Jetsons the movie is a really perfect example of that. I remember when it came out in 1990, I saw it a couple of times at the cinema, actually. I was obsessed with it because you get to see what I grew up with on television pretty much translated onto screen. And I remember when, like, the Flintstones film came out when they screened it here in Australia. They screened a Flintstones cartoon before it. And that was so exciting. Like, that was far better than the film because it was like you get to see what you've grown up with on your TV set now on the big screen. So all that stuff's part of this culture of comfort and this culture of, like, celebrating this stuff that's really important and really means something. Like, cartoons move me. Even if it's like a a Snagglepuss cartoon or a Regilla Gorilla, there's this fuzzy feeling that's, yes, part nostalgia, but also part as in like my own personal nostalgia as a kid, but also this kind of connection to these characters who have a lot of heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the key. Yeah. It absolutely is. And that was really well put. The Jetsons, as probably everybody knows, premiered on ABC in 1962, the very first color show that was ever on ABC, because they were kind of slow to get to. ABC was 
in a way, the way Fox Network was when it was starting. It was having trouble getting ratings. It was trying to go for a different audience to get the ratings. And it experimented a little bit. I think that helped not only the Flintstones get on in primetime, but with Fox, it's what The Simpsons was. Because the other networks would either try and fail with uh, animated shows because they were expensive or they wouldn't even go there. But in this case, ABC did, but they had the the Flintstones to hold up as a success. They wanted each subsequent show to do well. And so they put the Jetsons against the uh, wonderful world of color with Walt Disney and Dennis the Menace and Lassie. And that was a tough, tough slot. But what a very, very big deal that was when it started. Yeah, I think the key thing with the Jetsons was this idea of the future, the idea of how we might be living, you know, in 2000 and something, whenever the Jetsons was set. But it's kind of interesting what you're talking about with its competition. You know, you've got Lassie, which is like this beautiful homespun show, which is kind of going to be soon to be pushed aside when the rural purge starts to emerge in television. And you've got Dennis the Menace, who's basically lifted from a comic strip. So you've got this kind of otherworldly sort of fabricated world of suburbia with this this menacing little child who torments people. And then you've got the world of colour, which is a direct kind of response to competing with another studio, with another animation studio. It's a strain on this family, this futuristic family. But I think the key for it was this kind of antithesis of the Flintstones, this idea of like, okay, here you've had the Stone Age family, now you've got this futuristic family and we can play and have so much fun with the gadgetry we can have so much fun with how people live the idea of you know a two-hour work day or whatever it was the idea of like um kind of a utopia but still cemented in sitcom formula and still with the same universal problems and that's the key that's the beauty of it of course also the aesthetic so just having this kind of freedom to sort of express this idea of the future, but yet still keep it uniform, as Hanna-Barbera was so good at anyway, but keeping it kind of cemented into this kind of concrete world that stays the same, even though it's futuristic. So all this sort of stuff is part and parcel of how important the Jetsons was as a vehicle to sort of counter the Flintstones and also really sort of push Hanna-Barbera's work up a level. Yeah. It was kind of like saying, okay, now we can be really, really crazily inventive as we were with the Flintstones, but let's do something a bit more wildly different and have fun with this because we can go anywhere. It's the future, you know? Yeah, and with the Jetsons, I don't think any series was as dependent on its setting where the where they lived and what they did was as much a star of the show as they were. The buildings. I quote Smithsonian, Matt Novak, writing for Smithsonian, said that the Jetsons, something to the effect of it still remains the premier vision from the 20th century of the future, because people uh, use Jetsons as a as an adjective now. Yeah, that's right. And also the aesthetic of the Jetsons, he's totally right, looks like what people think of the future. Absolutely. Like, yeah, you're right, the architecture, the cars, even the fashions. So it's kind of, yeah, it's really interesting how it sort of fed into the culture, definitely. And funnily enough, kind of <laughs> predicted a lot of stuff we're using now. Look at what we're doing now. I mean, the listeners can't, can't see, but we're on cameras, you know, and that's what, you know, you've got Jane's mother annoying her and George more so <laughs> via a Zoom. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? So you've got that stuff embedded into the culture of the, the Jetsons. It's kind of like predicting the future without even realising it. 
there's all this stuff that the Jetsons did that reflect our culture now and what we're using and doing. Yeah, and yet they uh, still like people. They're still grumbling, oh, I'm pushing buttons all day, I'm exhausted. Hard day at the button, dear. Oh, brutal. Brutal, I had to push the button on and off five times. But if you're sitting at a computer all day, you're exhausted because it's concentrated thinking. You can be doing physical work, which is physically and mentally exhausting, but you can also be doing mental work that is. And so it's like when you're a kid and a parent who might work in an office says, oh, I, I'm so tired. It's like you sat in a chair all day. How hard can that be? Yeah. Well, that's kind of what they're saying there. Pressures and they hit every area. You have Judy with the teen stuff. Yeah. And then you've got Elroy. Elroy's voice has a tone of wonder and excitement about everything he does. Yeah, absolutely. And he's kind of the reverse of Dennis the Menace. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's sweet. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, Dennis is not completely, you know. Well, on deep. TV, he got nicer because there was no right. letters. That's right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't Damien Omen for, for the whole run. <laughs> Yeah, Alroy's a sweetheart, like, and the boy genius thing, which is also an archetype, but also the way they play it with Alroy is his sensitivity and his wonderment, like you're saying. He's, like, loving everything. He's in wonder of everything, in awe of everything. The teen thing with Judy, that's really interesting because that's kind of new. So this idea of teens, not only, like, representation of teens Mm -hmm. on television, but also marketing to teens. To have a Judy Jetson who's a teenage girl who's got all the woes and anguish and angst and uh, needs and desires and, and fan base of being a teenager is embodied in her character. And that's reflective of a teen girl culture that can now be sort of seen on television, yeah. um, which is really vital and really important. And Judy, again, like Alroy, is an absolute sweetheart. She's incredibly likable. And teens during this period of television are... And they kind of continue to be up into a point when they kind of become probably a little bit sort of annoying sometimes. But Judy is this really wonderful kind of um, expression of fandom. So she's constantly fanning over certain things. And that's really cool because it's reflecting the actual audience. So it's kind of playing on the idea of fandom being something to see, but also something that you are. So Judy's really important. Like, she's a really vitally important character in pop culture history because she's kind of reflective of exactly what we are doing. (laughs) She's that kind of embodiment of collectors, of people who want to be archivists, people who are obsessed with TV and film culture and music and theatre and whatever else. She's the embodiment of that and a very early representation of that, way before other characters would be fans. That's true because she predated Patty Duke show. That was a little bit closer to that. And she comes a little bit after and kind of during the Donna Reed show where you've got Shelley Fabre's character, but she's not as extreme and neither is Eleanor Donahue on Father Knows Best. Judy is much more of the teen of the 60s who just goes crazy over the latest things and has a sort of a fickleness. What's cool today? What isn't cool? She has a boyfriend who's the most... Uh, Pendleton. Oh, you're in love. Uh-huh. And how long is this going to last? Forever. Rosie, did you know Judy was in love again? Yes, sir. A boy. He is the most ut. The most what? The most ut. Rosie, I said he was the utmost. <laughs> I like Rosie's way better. And then by the end of the episode, oh, he's just a child. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> It's kinetic. 
Yeah, and also we've got to mention Astro, who is the consummate Hanna-Barbera dog, sort of the genesis for almost every one that came after. Even though there were Don Messick dogs earlier, Astro really set the standard at the first. Absolutely, and his love for the family and his devotion to the family. And my favourite episodes are sort of centred on Astro. You know, my people are dogs. Um, And so Hanna-Barbera's love for dogs is the best. As you've mentioned, you know, Don Messick voicing other dogs prior to Astro, but definitely Astro does set the tone for your Dino Mutt and your Scoobies, etc. And also Dino um, prior as well. You know, so all this beautiful long lineage of dogs in Hanna-Barbera is just wonderful. And that old adage of like, oh, we need a dog. You know? <laughs> <Or just laughs> yeah, Joe dog Barbera and- loved to throw a dog yeah, in. No, yeah, like just get a dog in there. And I love that. But um, yeah, Astro's wonderful because also, again, he's kind of the truth. And he has this kind of wonderful um, relationship with George, even though George is irritated by him, but he just sees the heart in George and that's what he taps into. And he will lick him to death until the point where George gives in. And that's the beauty of it. It's kind of like, don't bring your stresses to home because home is a place of comfort and joy and togetherness. So once I lick the hell out of you, you will get to that point. And it's kind of that thing of like, what cartoons actually do. It's kind of this sort of escapist ideology. And that's what dogs provide. Dogs provide a refuge, a, a sense of happiness, being healthy, being well, being, you know, being alive, living in the moment. And I think that's what Astro does. And Astro's relationship with each family member is all unique and different. And I, I love that as well. Because so it's true. Yeah. And it's really reflective of the family dog in real life. They have a different relationship with the mom or the dad or the daughter or the son. And that's beautiful. That's reflected in the jet sense beautifully. I think he's pretty much one of the only domestic dog as far as like bio family. I think of the rest in Hanna-Barbera, you know, it's Scooby with a chosen family. And it's, what's his name? Gooba and the crew. So all the other dogs seem to be kind of with this found family of usually teens, which Cassidy the Sundance kids, all these cartoons have this dog that's part of their band. <laughs> Whereas Astro seems to be the only kind of domestic dog, thinking about it now. But yeah, and then you've got the rogue, cool dog, you know, Huckleberry Hound, and of course, you know, your partnership of Augie Dog and Daddy Dog. And, but yeah, it's, it's a really beautiful character, Astro, and I love his design as well. I think he's, yeah. he's immensely a great Dane, right? Uh, yeah. Well, kind of, yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, Scooby isn't exactly an exact no. replica of a great Dane. <laughs> no. they're, all, they're all wonderful mutts. Yeah, it is, but a design has an awful lot to do with what the appeal is. There's another aspect to this, too, and that is that in the case of the Flintstones, you know, they were more blue-collar at first. They became more suburban as the series went on. The Jetsons were slightly upper-middle class, and George worked in a corporation, which was an interesting thing. Spacely was sort of the symbol of corporate America and Cogswell, the two fighting corporations and the dictatorial attitude of that. I mean, it, it goes back to Mr. Dithers. I know some people compare it to Blondie, but you never got the feeling Mr. Dithers was the head of a huge company. No, no. So there's this power play and the way he treats George. And yet he's the closest thing to a friend George has. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's an interesting dynamic there. But I love what you're saying about the class structure. So the Jetsons is very much a middle class family, kind of upwardly mobile as well. Like George mm-hmm. is yeah. had to get 
promotion, blah, blah, blah. And that's a very 60s thing. All these sitcoms, which we're all obsessed with, you know, rising on the corporate ladder, shows that sort of started to gear towards office spaces and workplaces that were not blue collar, that were kind of stepping out of that. Mm-hmm. But also having characters from working class backgrounds now entering it. And that's the key. That's really interesting. Because when you have characters from working class backgrounds, like the Jetsons, they were from their, you know, their past, their history of the working class, now becoming this middle class, this new American middle class of suburbia where you, you're social climbing and you've got your dinner parties and all this sort of stuff that comes with it is really fascinating. And you have their struggles are very different to, say, your blue-collar struggles, which you would have seen in, yes, early Flintstones, as well as what the Flintstones is derivative of, which is the Honeymooners, which is the epitome of working-class television. But what's happening as well throughout the 60s is this idea of jobs defining characters. The idea of careerism is actually a major factor. So George is kind of like, he's just nearly there, but there's this kind of antagonistic Spacely character who really does care for George. He's kind of like a father figure, but he's also antagonistic and he's also like quite ruthless. And those characters like Spacely, where they're kind of like the epitome of the bad boss or Mm -hmm. the, the troublesome boss, and they're peppered throughout the 60s in sitcom culture, right? Yep. It's a topic, it's Larry a big... Tate. Larry Tate on Bewitched. <laughs> exactly, exactly. They make for great characters to fight against, especially for the wiry, befuddled, messy male protagonist, whether it's Darren or George. It's really cool for writers to work with that, but also culturally. So then what happens in the 60s, you have this kind of comfortable middle class represented in television. 70s, nah, get that out. You know, that's where we get your all the families. That's where you get your good times. That's where you get one day at a time. We're going back to a working class sensibility. Laverne and Shirley, Taxi, mm-hmm. all these shows where it's about struggling people because the 70s was, as you know, was addled with recession. You know, all this sort of stuff was really much part of the culture and reflected in popular culture. Um, in the 80s, it shifts again. But the 60s, there are definitely representations of working class shows, absolutely, But for the most part, it's kind of presenting this kind of halcyon, you know, anyone can achieve sensibility. And I think that's what the Jetsons sort of looks at. And it sort of says, your wife can have multiple dresses and go to cocktail parties and you don't have to stress too much about buying your daughter the latest record and your son can do whatever he wants because you're making this money. And then also all of that is sort of pushed onto someone like George to keep up. Yes. And and that's what adds to his stress. <laughs> so that beautiful image of him on the treadmill is just exactly that. Help! Help! Jane, stop this crazy thing! Jane! As you mentioned so profoundly, it's still work. What he's doing might not look like work. Him having like a throbbing finger because he's pushing a button all day. Yeah, okay, it's it's a joke, it's funny because it sort of counters what Fred and Barney had to do all day and what Wilma and Betty had to do all day, where it was hard labour. But this is something that's a new kind of work, which is more mentally exhausting, maybe. I don't know. That interesting sort of change of stress. It takes for good comedy, especially for someone like George Jetson, who's basically built from stress. Yeah, yeah. He's a very neurotic person, now, much more than Fred he was bombastic, but he was a softy inside. And George is a nervous type. He's more of the Jack Lemon prototype character. Absolutely. Know. Which is a very popular 60s go to male trope. 
Yeah, actually, Darren Stevens is like him, too. And in a way, Mad Men was the Jetsons era as well, because it began the best Mad Men episodes were the early 60s Kennedy era ones, because that was an era that dramatically wasn't as explored as often in modern media. Yeah, Those yeah. of us we may have lived through it and our parents lived through it, but we didn't see it dramatized. So that was fascinating. And the Jetsons falls right into there. And I do believe that 1962-63, 24 episodes, and then stop. Look at it as a miniseries because you couldn't go past that because of the Kennedy era. And the Jetsons appeared at precisely the right time in history when, just like you said, there was nothing but optimism. There was going to be a way we could do things that, like Star Trek, we'd work it out in the future. Things would be okay. We'd still have everything we needed. There was always a possibility of the better life. And the look of uh, Judy had the capris and the, you know, and Jane and Judy, they dressed kind of like Laura Petri, depending on whether she was at a cocktail party or she was just hanging around the house with, you know, Buddy and Sally. So it was very, very early 60s. In fact, Judy's outfit looks just like Anne Margaret's and Bye Bye Birdie yeah. on the album cover, which yeah. probably isn't a coincidence. No, because that's the ultimate in teen fandom. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a time capsule that came perfectly along because after what happened with Kennedy and all of these things start dreams starting to fade and, and what led to counterculture and all of that, you couldn't necessarily sustain it the same way, you know? And when it moved into the eighties, besides it being the product of a much different company, because Hanna-Barbera was owned by a bigger company, they had learned a system of production that, they didn't know in 62, they were still learning what was going to work. And they only made 24 episodes. And in this case, they had to do, I don't know, 72. They had to get up to an amount so they could run it every day. The pace was different. I think the most admirable thing about both the 80 series and the movie is how many studios, especially now, would go to the trouble of bringing in the original actors and helping them through the lines when they were ill. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. that's the thing Hanna-Barbera did a lot. Yeah. The 80 series isn't, you know, a lot of people just dismiss it and it can't be the original series. It can't, but there are things to say about it. There's many episodes on the uh, DVD are in stereo. That's kind of cool, but it's a different Jetsons because it's the eighties. Yeah, what you're having in the 80s is working class characters like in Punky Brewster. And then you have rich characters, like super crazy rich things happening on TV, like Dennis and Dallas. And then you've got this common ground, quote unquote, working to middle class, your Mr. Belvedere's, you know, all these shows where it's kind of like also escapist because how on earth does a freelance sports journalist and a student pay for a housekeeper? It doesn't matter. It's TV world. It's this made up. The 80s with the Jetsons, it kind of suggests that, oh, look, this is another alternate universe of how people will be living or could be living. It's also kind of like if you continue to do this with how you're living, this is what will eventuate and there's good stuff in it, but there's also not so good stuff in it. Also, the 80s becomes a little bit obsessed with, in the pop culture sense, this hammering in the idea of um, let's save the planet. 
And that's really vital. And that sort of pops up in a lot of cartoon stuff. And it really does escalate into the Jetsons movie. It's really important. I love it as an environmentalist, as an animal rights activist. I absolutely love that. Sometimes, though, it sort of is a little bit sort of um, ham-fisted a little bit. But with the Jetsons show, it's not the 80s show. It's subtle, but it's still there. It's this concept of uh, getting along, the coexistence thing, which is very much on par with um, what Jim Henson was doing with, say, Fraggle Rock. Mm-hmm. So there's all this stuff that's happening in the 80s where it's about education as well as entertainment. And I think the Jetsons cartoon show really cleverly, like the writing on that show, on this 80s series, was so smart because it was so subtle, did do that but didn't hammer it into your face. It wasn't, you know, Earth Day cartoon special. You know, it wasn't that at all. <laughs> It was just this sort of subtle stuff that was happening. And I rewatched some of the episodes from the 80s going, wow, they're talking about stuff in there that's not just sort of coming on hard and heavy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's a very sort of subtle approach. And I think that's really important. But also it fit in so well with 80s sensibilities as far as representations of family on TV. That dynamic of let's get through a whole 20-odd minute show, let's bring in this kind of lesson learned but also let's reflect the culture of the time, which is America and the world, Australia included, coming towards or reaching a point where class is kind of becoming a little bit intangible. This common ground of an idealised middle class that could be very blue collar or could be quite affluent, but it's this common denominator that was running through the 80s and the Jetsons 80s show taps into that. It's a pretty heavy order to fill to take a show that had a 62 sensibility and then yeah. that many years later make it as true as they possibly could under the production and budget to circumstances too, because a, a daytime show is never going to have the budget that a network primetime show has and oh. still reflect a little bit more of what people expect a show to do. And you brought up a really important point, and this is so relevant nowadays, is that there are films and TV shows that have changed change the world slightly because it's always in increments it's in millimeters and many of them have done it and had their messages baked in organically like you're talking about and what hannah barbera did so often it was always sort of the human element or you know even with scooby-doo it was for fun even hannah says this in the mcgilla gorilla promo film you know you we don't do messaging we entertain your entertainment is the message but They knew who Jane was. They knew who Judy was, who Astro was, who Alroy was, etc. And to have the shows kind of written like a format, formulaic 50s, 60s sitcoms where nothing gets too heavy, sure, but there is stuff in there for perceptive kind of hawk-eyed audiences who want to find it. It's there. It's definitely there. And now, folks, please stay with us for part two, when film and TV historian and critic Lee Gambin returns to take a closer look at the Jetsons on the big screen. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.